I'm recording this for home, from home and my cat cannot stop rubbing his head on my microphone. So this is probably going to be uh, a low sound quality episode. Uh, like seriously, man, come on. Fucking <laughs> 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 cats. Man. Well, well, the good news is we probably found our uh, cold open segment for you to put yep, in. We, so that's, yep, that's good. We definitely did. Um, and if you're going to note for the viewers that you have a cat brushing against the microphone, I'm going to say we have a new sound system in place that does not involve a mute button. So the sounds of me drinking wine are going to be evident throughout this podcast. Did I say viewers? Our listeners. I mean, you can say viewers, but I don't think anyone's just watching that SoundCloud uh, line. <laughs> yeah, they're just watching the, the waveform while I drink wine. <laughs> right. yeah, they're, they're uploading the MP3 file to YouTube. Major Major Briggs's head is viewing this uh, from another dimension right. right now. So many people around. <laughs> everybody we are back with wrapped in podcast episode nine we're going to discuss part nine of twin peaks the return with us we have the uh the four key players in wrapped in podcast uh kyle uh is joining us remotely i understand that uh, kyle you are in the florida keys is that correct uh yeah we're in uh, siesta key for the uh for uh, a week's vacation and uh, uh nevertheless we're able to take advantage of technology to watch and record this podcast what, have you had a chance to go scuba diving or have any mixed drinks on the beach? No, I have not done any of these things. <laughs> okay. Uh, and uh, Ken is with us. Ken, how are you doing? Doing well. Personally, I am on a private FBI-funded jet somewhere above West South Dakota. And Jeff Fallis is back with us. Uh, he's, it's a, this, is a, this is a doubleheader for him. Two nights in a row recording Wrapped in Podcast episodes. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing good. I'm recovering from last night's exegesis, and I'm, I'm searching for the zone. You've got that new criticism hangover. Exactly. Don't expect too much from me tonight, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, We've all been there, buddy. Okay, so uh, this is, a, I think, episode seven and episode eight and episode nine form a kind of interesting triptych uh, where we had seven as a real plot-driven episode with a lot of exciting things happened, and then there was episode eight or part eight. Uh, which was totally bonkers and nuts uh, and and great. I think at least most of the people on the podcast think that. And now with, with episode nine, we have more action, more things coming together. Uh, and it was just a very satisfying hour of Twin Peaks. Uh, we, we started out with a scene of, of Mr. C, Bad Coop, uh, walking down the road. Uh, and this is, for me, it's real interesting because what does it mean that we have the doppelganger of Cooper, Cooper Mr. C with a pa- without Bob inside of him, as far as you know, Bob is no longer with him, you know, ostensibly since we saw the amniotic fluid bag with his head removed from his chest by the woodsman. So what does that mean? I don't think we really got any clues or insights as to what could be different about Mr. C now. Uh, but he's, his eyes are still blacked out, which was what I was looking for primarily. And he shows up at this place, 
that is a farm. Uh, it's unclear if it's the farm that uh, that fucker Ray w- referred to at the beginning of episode eight. He knows where to go. Bed- Mr. C knows where to go because there's a red bandana on a fence post. We we, we shift from this scene to uh, the uh, Gordon Cole's private jet uh, where uh, Tammy, um, subservient as always, brings a uh, Gordon some coffee while uh, Albert and Diane are sleeping in the front of the plane. Uh, Now the action comes together because Gordon gets a call from Colonel Davis at the Pentagon. And uh, he finds out that there's a place, Buckhorn, uh, not what Cole originally thought, which was, you know, some sort of uh, (laughs) expletive Uh, Buckhorn, South Dakota, West South Dakota. And he's Cole's got to talk to Lieutenant Knox at the Buckhorn police department. Uh, so I've, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for some interagency cooperation in the show, which we got to see for the first time here. Unless anybody has anything to chime in with, we can go back to the farm. Well, just that uh, it's been interesting to see these pieces start to fall into place. And it made for a very different kind of viewing experience after episode eight, feeling a little bit like we were ticking off boxes in terms of things that we already predicted would happen. And plot lines that we expected to come together in the ways they're coming together. So I, I suspect, Kyle, it must have been much more satisfying for you, for example. Yeah, I mean, it was nice to uh, to get some of this confirmed, although I guess after episode eight, anything that is narratively linear feels a little bit like spoon feeding. But there were a couple of moments where you had exchanges that really seemed like they were almost talking to the audience and saying, yeah, okay, here's how these things line up. I don't think it was overdone, but uh, it it did kind of feel a little bit more, uh, I won't say forced, but uh, a little clearer than I think I was ever expecting them to say this early on. Yeah, another way of looking at that is just that the connections between plot lines are starting to come hard and fast. Like it did right. seem, I think you're right, like they were kind of crammed in to this episode. But it's it's a hard to complain about, from my end anyway, it's, it seems hard to complain about getting more of what I would have found really satisfactory much earlier in the season. So I think right. on the whole, it's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with all that. So we, we go from from the, the jet back to, to the farm. And so we kind of internally had some debate about, is this the same farm that Ray w- was referring to when he was in the car with Coop? And, uh, you know, it, it, it would be strange that Ray would want to take Coop back to where we now know his trusted associates, Mr. And Mrs. Hutchins, uh, will be waiting for him and ready to carry out his bidding. Uh, but we also don't know whether or not Ray actually was intending to do that or if he had a separate plan. Who knows what happened? Um, and maybe, you know, all bets are off once, you know, a horde of, uh, woodsmen come out of the woods to pull, uh, Bob's head out of someone's chest. So, um, yeah, what do you guys think? Is this the farm that Ray was talking about? I referred to it as the farm and sort of assumed it to be so. I have no particular reason to think that other than the fact that it is a farm. I do want to go back just a step, though, JR. I guess I didn't interpret the amniotic sequence as removing Bob all the way from Cooper. He made an appearance. Oh, really? Yeah, he made an appearance in that amniotic fluid. But because Cooper came back to life, and I guess I just think of his, like, anima as being this Bob energy, I just assumed he, he they put him back in. That the 
Woodsman had just sort of shoved him back in, that we got a glimpse of him, and it was, you know, gruesome and very artistic, but that he was right back there. So I'd been operating under a different assumption than you had going into this scene. I'm not suggesting you're wrong. I'm I'm probably wrong. I don't know. But uh, but I definitely looked at it as Bob is is still animating this bad Cooper body. Huh. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. What do you guys think, Kyle and Jeff? I hadn't thought of it that way, but it would account for, uh, on some level, his revival. If if he needs, I mean, yeah, this is like a something we haven't really seen addressed. Whether or not, uh, since Bob seems like he's been with you know uh, Doppel Cooper this whole time, what would it be like if? Uh, he didn't have him with him. Unanswered question. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I probably leaned more toward Ken's view than JR's on this, but it's certainly not clear to me. And, you know, we had the scene uh, with Doppel Cooper in the jail cell looking at himself in the mirror and seeing his features shift into Bob's and making the comment that it was good to know that Bob was still with him. So it's apparently not always clear even to him whether Bob is still with him. So it's not surprising that it's not clear to us. Oh yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, well, I, I thought it was clear to us because Bob was physically removed from him, but right. So back at the harm, uh, Gary Hutch, Hitch, Hutchins, as is, is played by Tim Roth, and he's this really great, sort of grimy, low life yet seemingly pretty competent criminal. Uh, and we get to uh, get some insight into how Bad Coop operates. And the efficiency of his operation. And it seems like uh, Chantal and Gary are a, a notch above Daria and Ray. Oh, yeah. In terms of their yeah, competence, sure. right? Absolutely. Um, they're, 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 they're ready to go. And, you know, um, uh, Coop needs uh, phones. He needs clean phones. He needs ammunition. Chantal's there. She's ready to like go get the kit or whatever it is to take care of the bullet in his gut. And Kyle, you had some thoughts on on the location of the bullet. Yeah, when uh, when Chantal asks him where he was wounded, he, he lifts up his shirt and you see there's a bullet hole in his stomach area. It's to the left of his navel, just above his belt. And, and it seems like that's almost an exact mirror image of where Cooper was shot in the season one finale. Uh, it's just above the belt. It's alongside his belly button, but that one's on the right side. We could see that from the start of season two, where you can see where the blood stain is. And, and, and it's funny to me that uh, in the previous instance, Cooper sustained the bullet wound because he had raised his bulletproof vest to get after a wood tick. And, and we see Doppel Cooper basically raise his shirt here in pretty much the, the same fashion to show Chantal. Uh, and of course, in that previous instance, uh, Agent Cooper's assailant was Josie Packard, and subsequently she died. Bob showed up, and he mockingly asked what happened to Josie. And here we have uh, Doppel Cooper. Of course, his attacker, Ray, uh, was very weirded out, understandably so, by the supernatural apparitions who appeared to, who, you know, prevented from finishing off Doppel Cooper with this headshot. Uh, Ray clearly didn't get what happened to Mr. C there. Uh, judging from our own debate, we, we have some lack of clarity ourselves from what exactly happened. Uh, but he, too, had a vision of Bob and surmised correctly that this grimacing placental villain was the key to the whole thing. So we've said amniotic and placental thus far, which means uh, yes. drink drink twice. <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we go back to the jet. Uh, lots of switching from the farm to the jet to the farm to the jet. Uh, where Cole has to convince Diane to go with them to Buckhorn, where she's expecting to go back to Philadelphia. She's pretty reluctant, but she recognizes that it's a Blue Rose case. 
and sort of agrees begrudgingly to stay. Diane tries to use her phone, uh, but it's blocked. She can't use it. Uh, but Tammy's phone rings or the satellite phone that she used to talk to the Pentagon before rings and it's Warden Murphy. And it turns out that uh, now Gordon gets to find out that Cooper blew the coop. Um, so we go from here back to the farm. Wait, JR, you, Chair, you left out the really good Albert line. Albert wakes yeah, up just absolutely. long enough to, to oh, look right. at Tammy or to look at Diane and say, "I know, I know, fuck you, Albert," and goes right back to sleep. That's right. It's delightful. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's great. So back at the farm, uh, we know that the owners of this property are farmers, and apparently they were really taking a load off uh, in the back. <laughs> one of them is lying face down in the dirt. The other one is like propped up against a wall. Uh, not not sure how things are going to turn out for for those uh, uh, yeoman uh, landowners um, there. It turns out Coop's got a new phone, at, which he uses to text using like circa two thousand one uh, texting because it's just a, a numeric keypad uh, to someone we don't know who yet. Uh, around the dinner table, the conversation is lively, uh, which I think Kyle you adroitly pointed out that immediately calls to mind the room above the convenience store where people are gathered around a formica table. Right. Uh, and the conversation is, is, is anything but lively. Yes. Duncan Todd in Las Vegas gets a call from Mr. C bad coop, you know, it's a very brief conversation, but we find out that, you know, he's, did you do it? Not yet. Better be done next time I call. Um, Duncan, it starts typing. He panics a little bit and calls in Roger, uh, the same Roger that he called into his office, I think, in the, one of the first two episodes, to say that he should never work for a really bad man. Now we know definitively that Duncan is working for Coop. Um, this, you know, this makes me wonder, like, who, where, what's the hierarchy here? Um, if if Duncan's working for Coop, who's Lorraine calling uh, when Lorraine is carrying out Coop's, you know, kill order uh, that she gets from? Uh, Duncan. And we also don't know who Ike the Spike is getting his orders from necessarily, although, or at least who he's calling. We know he's got, he got the picture, it, it appears, from Duncan Todd. Well, and somewhere in there, there's the box in Argentina that's looped in to this. Yes. <coughs> well, no, definitely. That's, that's who that appear, seemingly Lorraine called, right? right? And, and we just don't know how that's connected into the that chain of command, if, if anything. We shift back to the farm uh, where uh, Hutch has got a shotgun and, and a bag, presumably with the clean phones and ammunition or guns that he needs. Uh, Coop tells Hutch that he needs to call, uh, need, needs to kill Warden Murphy um, back in Yankton, um, either at his, at his job, at his home, or on the way. So he's got a lot of options there. Um, yeah, and so... The Hutchins, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hutchins are a, a polyamorous couple. Uh, they've got an open relationship uh, <laughs> uh, of presumably mutual respect and uh, assent uh, that it involves uh, Mr. C making out with her quite a bit before he leaves. Then he gets some Cheetos or something from Chantal. I have a, yeah, I have a comment about this. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, yeah, well, well, first I was going to say, uh, Hutch, you know, I, I noticed my second viewing, it seems like he gets his clothes from like the Killer Bob cast-off bin. Uh, <laughs> he was sort of dressed like this, not as stylish as Killer Bob, but definitely, yeah. you know, rocking the sort of Canadian tuxedo down at the heels look. Uh, my second observation was, 
that there those are definitely Cheetos that uh, Chantal is giving uh, Cooper for the road. And I think in you know when she was in the hotel room adjoining his in one of the early episodes, her room was littered with Cheetos. Uh, and my theory is that the the high fructose corn syrup found in Cheetos uh, might also include Garbanzia extract. Uh, but that's yeah. all I have to say about that's that. That's good. Yeah. I posted an essay on our Facebook page uh, from a critic who pointed out the connection between a whole bunch of Lynch's artwork and the convenience of the mid to late 20th century with particular ties to corn and oil. So uh, I like that a lot. The idea that high fructose corn syrup is a favorite of Bad Coops fits nicely with with that uh, that imagery and motif. And there's also like sort of this familiarity like this had happened before when Chantal had to say bad coop. She just gives him some Cheetos for the road. They exchanged a, a little look there, but I, that, that was one of my favorite bizarre moments in the episode. Yeah, no, definitely. There was meaning behind the Cheetos. Right. They, right, they had right. Like, some sort of token quality. Think of, think uh, of me on the road. Don't forget me. Yeah. yeah. Right. 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 It's, it's like a, almost like a ritual that they had. Yeah. Um, and Roth is sort of delightful I'm, here too. He's, he's really fun in this part, but he's great in pretty much everything right. he's ever played. Right. Um, and of course, if you saw the Hateful Eight, uh, you know there there was plenty of interaction between uh, Tim Roth and um, and, Je- and Jennifer Jason Lee. And so we go from the farm to the Las Vegas Police Department, which used to have this really like ornate like facade in its entrance. Ken, did you, you you suspected that there the the Las Vegas Police Department doesn't actually look like that? Yeah, it was just this weird kind of a deco look to the the outside. I don't know. I'm not an architecture guy, but I would have been surprised if the Las Vegas Police Headquarters looked like that. It doesn't seem to. It looks like a much more modern building in real life. So this seems to be Lynch's take on on what the Las Vegas Police Department might look like in his world. Okay, so uh, anyway, at the police department, what we've got are. Dougie and Janie E waiting patiently in a hallway, although Janie E never really looks that patient. Um, and Bushnell Mullins is talking to the brothers Fusco, um, and who are asking him about, you know, uh, Dougie. And we get a little bit of backstory on Dougie, uh, namely that he's been at the uh, Lucky Seven Insurance Company for 12 years. He's a good worker, slow and steady. <clears throat> and everyone chalks up his odd behavior to a car accident that he had about. 12 years ago, but before he started at the insurance company uh, and has, you know, sort of sporadic lingering effects. Uh, I don't know, like some sort of brain injury that causes him to uh, get, you know, blanked out like we see him now, but which doesn't seem to really disturb anybody. It's weird because Bushnell starts to kind of put the things together. Like, you know, what this doesn't make any sense. So, you know, somebody would try to attack him and his car blows up and, as, as he's doing this and he's talking to the to the detectives who who I think are probably bad guys uh, maybe not but they, they do show up on some of Tony's crooked insurance files right. so I, I kind of get the sense that they're they're in on the take uh, and and that is why they're kind of icy with Bushnell as they're interrogating him and then at the same time Bushnell starts making a fist right you know like he's calling upon his his power as a as a boxer, as a fighter in the ring, uh, from his, from his past, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. And after, um, Bushnell leaves, he kind of, uh, the, the detectives start talking about how they, apparently there's no paper record whatsoever of Dougie before 1997. They speculate that it could be witness protection and that somebody's one of the brothers says he's going to call somebody uh, that he knows at justice. Um, but we don't see that happen. 
Yeah, and we don't we don't know who it is, but it's uh, it's an intriguing possibility because obviously uh, it could be someone at the FBI, which means it could be some connection uh, to one of the FBI agents that uh, that we know about. The the uh, the neat part about them putting a year on it though is we've got 1997. That's when uh, apparently Dougie was manufactured for his ultimate purpose, and that would be eight years after Doppelcooper escapes from the Black Lodge in 1989. It's ten years after Philip Jeffrey's disappearance in Buenos Aires in 1987. Uh, and since we know that Twin Peaks: The Return takes place in 2014, 25 years after 1989. And Dougie's been with the Lucky 7 Insurance Company for 12 years. It means Dougie came to work for Bushnell in 2002, which would have been five years after he was manufactured. So we're, we're starting to get a better sense of the timeline and what the actual significance of it being 1997 and 2002 necessarily are. We don't know, but it, at least we got a better sense of when events happened uh, along this continuum of the last quarter century. The other thing that kind of jumped out at me in this scene, or it just makes me think about the entire over of uh, David Lynch's work and how I think Kyle, you said this probably about 25 years ago uh, that you could easily write a master's thesis, if not a PhD dissertation, just on the treatment of law enforcement uh, personnel and David Lynch's films. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I guess, and I think part, part of what, uh, why I, I suspect that the Fusco brothers are crooked is because at least one of them or two of them start cracking up right. for no apparent reason, which is always a tell that you've got a really brutal and crooked uh, police officer on your hands. Right. It's almost like the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department is the exception, and the exception to that exception being, of course, fucking Chad. Right. Um, where the even with Andy, the police officers are treated except except by Albert. Uh, with respect and you know not as certainly not corrupt right uh not bad not irritating uh not jerks but in pretty much every other film uh that david lynch has made whether it's a, a prison guard right in lost highway uh, lost highway yeah. or it's the uh the yellow man the corrupt uh and a detective in blue velvet sure who you'll recall is named gordon which you know really kind of scares me about Gordon Cole's potential that I, I, he, I think he's probably going to turn out to be a good guy in, in, in Twin Peaks. But remember he wore a yellow coat, um, the same kind of puke yellow coat that Dougie wore, uh, before he, um, was called back to the black lodge that we kind of surmised might be a symbol of German Bozia. So anyway, uh, that, that connection kind of jumped out to me and I had a sort of a, a I went to a fugue state about police officers <laughs> and David Lynch's work as I watched this scene. I think you're right, though. And then the these the scenes of the Fusco brothers here, it also reminded me of, you know, the Deer Meadow uh, Police Department and Twin Peaks Firewalk yeah. with me and how those cops exactly. kind of hysterically, moronically laughed all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, I didn't specifically remember that, but that was always, that, that, that was definitely in my mind, too. There's kind of a, a, a decent, some decent police work here, though, because I don't, I don't think it's a Fourth Amendment violation. What do you think, uh, Ken, um, grabbing that, uh, that coffee cup to go dust it for Prince and DNA. Oh man. I mean, is there anything left anymore of the protection against search? Probably not. I mean, we just had another Supreme court decision. I mean, it's, it's admissible whether or not it's a violation is, is my advice now. Right. Right. Yeah. That's depressingly. So, so, you know, they, they grab his, his coffee cup to dust it for Prince and get uh, some DNA workup, which 
uh, is about to happen, but then of course uh, it doesn't because it turns out that Ike the Spike fucked himself. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> that's right. Uh, they they've got his location, and uh, and and like the the cops are just filled with glee. Like, ooh, that sounds like fun. I'm gonna go <laughs> go get Ike the Spike. Uh, and so that's what they do. But I'm, I do think here getting the f- fingerprints and DNA from Dougie is going to set off red flags at the FBI because they're going to have Cooper's uh, presumably fingerprints show up and we'll, we'll get even more of a connection as this, you know, circle starts to tighten yeah. between, um, Buckhorn and Las Vegas and to a lesser extent, uh, Twin Peaks and New York City. Meanwhile, uh, there's a, a slow, pan over to Dougie and Janie E who has this kind of um, reverie as he looks at the American flag in the corner and you start to hear uh, America, the beautiful in the background. And then um, I think Jeff, you had some thoughts on this scene. Yeah, this, this is just one of those sort of quintessentially Lynchian moments that I think, you know, people who want to read Lynch is sort of an ironic hipster who's making fun of everything, you know, kind of read, these sequences as parodic, you know, it reminded me of kind of the opening sequence of blue velvet, you know, where you sort of have, you know, this idyllic, you know, uh, all American kind of scenes of, you know, flowers and uh, friendly, you know, it, it, it seems like a montage from like, a you know, the fifties, you know, like a, a fire truck, you know, with a, a waving fireman, you know, uh, kind of rolling by slowly. But there's also the sense in which these scenes are completely sincere, you know, and, and straightforward and, you know, it's almost like, you know, you just you pick the most obvious rendition of the America, the beautiful played by the Air Force band, you know, but the look on, you know, Kyle McLaughlin's face playing Dougie Cooper was haunted, you know, and, and it kind of genuinely moved me by the end. And so there, this kind of weird Lynchian mixture of something that seems like it's so square that he couldn't possibly mean it. But I think he does. You know, it's it's like something from like a, a 50s B movie, but it's still affecting. Uh, and then it reminded me of, you know, that uh, in uh, the autobiography of, of FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper, which we've debated whether or not that's canonical. But early on in it, young Cooper has a poster of Jimmy Stewart in the FBI story that only he could touch. And I could see right. I've not seen that movie, but I could imagine a scene from this playing out the same way Jimmy Stewart looking at an American flag, you know, in a police station and the America, the beautiful, the music kind of swelling there. Uh, but I, I just liked uh, this little scene and it seemed like one of those things that was so essentially kind of Lynchian. But then we see some shoes, some high heel shoes, uh, some red high heels walking by. And I think the music stops and we get, you know, low ominous electrical whooshing. Uh, but I think uh, Kyle J or somebody else had something to say about uh, the heels. I just wanted to, to point out the bit about the uh, America, the beautiful on the flag. Right. Yeah. So when I saw the red, the red heels, I immediately thought of wizard of Oz, but Kyle, you had a different view. Yeah. And, and I will admit, I almost always miss the wizard of Oz references in David Lynch's work. I've been doing that since wild at heart. So it's possible that I missed that, but I, I took the red shoes literally. Uh, and when you think of red shoes, you, you think of, uh, of Audrey Horn, who of course wore the saddle shoes to school and then took them off and replaced them with red high heels, uh, in the pilot, and that really gave us an indication of who Audrey Horn was, really summed up her personality quite a bit. Uh, and, and the reason I thought of that was that Dougie Coop 
keeps finding resonance with important ties to Dale's old life. He's, he's connected to the guns, the badges, the word agent, the words case files, the American flag, uh, red shoes that presumably remind him of Audrey Horn, and then the electrical socket from which he emerged. Uh, and, and I think it's rather telling in this episode, Dougie Coop's only line, the only word he says is, answers. And, and I think we're starting to get a little bit closer. We get some answers on some other things in this episode. I think we're starting to get a little bit closer to the answers for Cooper actually coming out of this Dougie state. Yeah, Kyle, I'll say that this is the most that I've liked Dougie. And partly it's because I think I'm just riding this high and goodwill still from episode eight, but he's used very sparingly and effectively yeah. in this episode. And I, I, I quite enjoy him. And like Jeff, I was a little bit moved by his reverie here. It's great. I think, Kyle, that if you think of Red Shoes, you either think of Audrey Horn. I'm, I'm always thinking of Audrey Horn. Or sure. you, uh, you think of Zalman King, really. It's, it's, it's one right. or the other. The Red Shoe Diaries <laughs> or Audrey. Uh, or Christian Louboutin, I guess. Uh, but yeah. um, so, Jeff, there are people who think that David Lynch is being sarcastic or parodic when he presents these elements of Americana that he loves so much. That's a school of thought that's out there. I think so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there are some people who kind of read it all as this ironic kind of hip parody of things. And I've I've never read it that way, but I think. Some some people have. Yeah, yeah, those people are wrong. Their souls are impoverished, and I pity them. I feel bad for those they people. Might have, That's a terrible they way might of looking have been at the manuf- world. They might have been manufactured. You can't blame them. <laughs> That's right. There's no <laughs> history be, of these people that may be before their purpose. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I, I, Their purpose is to draw my ire and make me furious. Um, but I have one little shot in the sequence I'd like to point to also, just at the beginning of the reverie here, uh, at like 17 minutes even, where I happened to pause it while we were talking about this, there's a shot of the American flag with the light coming uh, at it from the right, and it's shadow on the wall. And it almost looks like the wall is forming sort of a doorway. Like when I glanced over at it, it seemed like the woman in the red shoes was actually going to emerge from the wall, which given that he panned over or his gaze is drawn over to the electrical socket a minute later from which things have a tendency of emerging in this show <laughs> would not be all that surprising right if somebody actually came out of a wall but it's a it's a lovely little shot and the whole uh, the whole sequence is, is really impressive and, and enjoyable to watch well Ike the Spike has an answer for JT no cigar uh, he's taking medical leave and he's drinking Evan Williams um, he he's he makes a phone call from his hotel room where the cops he d- doesn't realize have got him cornered. Uh, he 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 drinks the whiskey, and uh, at that point he he comes out into the hallway, and uh, he's trapped between uh, two trios of police officers on either side with their guns pointed at him, and uh, he he he's got one very bandaged bandaged hand, and he just. You know, he gives up. There's he. You did. I kind of wondered if he was going to try to fight or do some sort of crazy Yoda shit uh, to to fight the the cops, but he doesn't. He kind of gives up and makes this little sound, <laughs> a little like groan sound uh, that that I quite enjoyed. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about the difference between Bullet Bourbon and Evan Williams in terms of bang for your buck, if you like. If if anybody's interested in a subsidiary Ken's Beverage Corner, but. 
He yeah. did grimace when he drank that Evan Williams. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do the 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 rum thing, I think yeah. you know we can just note that Evan Williams is definitely down market from Bullet. It's, but see, wait, but I don't think that's true. Evan Williams is is cheap bourbon that tastes good, and it's a successful Heaven Hill product, and it's probably less mass produced at this point than um than Bullet. I Bullet has some good people. Tom Bullet is a is a really good guy, uh, but that is extremely mass produced, extremely mediocre juice at this point and evan williams if you can get it in in the well somewhere in a in a whiskey sour or something is all right i'm not i'm i'm not actually sure i agree with that heaven hell has a good flavor profile it's good whiskey okay i'm cutting that (laughs) (laughs) i think i I think jeff jeff had a point here right jeff was jeff were you saying something there Oh, no, no. Okay. I I had mentioned originally the difference between Bullet and Evan Williams, but um, Ken answered it. JR didn't like it. I guess we'll move on. I would like to add that uh, because I think it's thematically important to the rest of this episode, we we see Ike the Spike in the hotel room, and all of our views of him are in the mirror. And, of course, that reemphasizes the omnipresent theme of doubling throughout the series uh, in every incarnation. And when he's arrested – He's arrested by two trios. There are three cops at one end of the hall, and the three detectives, Fusco, are at the other end of the hall. And so what we're seeing here is a doubling of triplings, and that gives us a hint to the upcoming contrast between the awareness of there being two Coopers and the reality of there being three Coopers. And I think we're going to see a lot of doubling and tripling throughout the course of this episode. So we go from uh, Ike the Spike's capture to uh, the Twin Peaks Sheriff Department, where Lucy and Andy are having this kind of passive aggressive battle over what kind of chair they're going to buy online. Uh, I'd note that a chair Ottoman combo for $179 almost certainly means that they are made in China under, you know, probably atrocious working conditions. Um, and, but anyway, the, the Andy wants a red chair. Uh, Lucy wants a beige chair. Um, Andy probably makes the right choice and relents to Lucy to get the beige chair, but Lucy secretly gets the red chair. I didn't get a lot out of this, but Kyle, I think you had a few things to say. Yeah, I, I, I have a disproportionate importance that I attach to this scene. Um, we, we start out with an exterior shot that establishes that the sun is rising. We're seeing the sheriff's station in the morning, and this is underscored subsequently by the fact that we later see Lucy uh, very ostentatiously taking her midday lunch break and stating that she's not there because she's eating lunch. And and we're seeing identical images being viewed by two people on three screens. Andy's got one, Lucy's got two. So again, we've got a clear example of doubling and tripling occurring concurrently. And this echoes the previous scene and it foreshadows the later discoveries by their fellow sheriff's department employees that we'll get to uh, hereafter. They debate whether to choose beige, which is a familiar, comforting earth tone, reminiscent of the soft color palette of the original series as embodied in the innocent characters of Andy and Lucy, or instead to pick red, which is an ominous and otherworldly warning sign, which is frequently seen flashing from the traffic signal. Unsurprisingly, Andy, who's become more worldly as evidenced by his investigative encounter with the farmer, prefers the edgier red. While the clueless Lucy, who remains so stuck in the past that she cannot comprehend the concept of the cell phone, wants to go with the more subdued beige. 
Ultimately, they agree to choose the safer beige, but what they actually will end up getting is the more perilous primary color. And this sets the stage for the chromatic transition, which is foreshadowed by the shoes seen in Las Vegas. The red has come to Twin Peaks, as emphasized by the fact that the online description of this chair reads, this plush fabric chair will instantly update your space. So we're seeing the upgrading from what was happening before to, to the modern time. Uh, and, and this can take us in any number of, of directions, and I'll try to avoid pursuing too many tangents. But, you know, you've got The Colors of the Horses in Iron John by Robert Bly, which is a book that Kyle MacLachlan said heavily influenced him during the time of the show's original run. You can go with the color-coded spiral dynamics of Grant Morrison's highly dualistic Pax Americana, which replaced Watchmen's nine-panel grid, nine being three times three, double threes, with the eight-panel grid, eight being two times two times two, or triple twos. And in any case, it's definitely significant that the camera work makes a point of stressing the time of day uh, because there's an old Mariner's axiom that says red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky at morning, sailor take warning. Well, there's a red, uh, the, the red is coming in uh, through the morning light, and, and so we know that danger is, is coming our way. And then finally, this is all part of their shopping for furnishings for the conversion of Wally Brando's bedroom into a study of some sort that they talked to him about when he came through town. That's further severing the ties to Twin Peaks of the aimless Wally, who's probably the son of Dick Gadolite Tremaine, and it will allow Andy and Lucy to read together quietly at home in a way we haven't seen them do since the original series pilot. So, in other words, this is a seemingly silly scene that I think carries a ton of important implications. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, Johnny Horn runs into a wall and hits his head. Um, he he might be dead, but he seemed to be breathing from what I could see. It was kind of a random and stark scene, but it's new information about characters that are out there. Johnny Horn, apparently he's not supposed to be let out. Yeah, the thing that I took away on this was that uh, the, the bloody headbutt into the wall reminded me of Leland's death. And, and at the moment of the impact, although we don't actually see the impact, we do see an electrical flash of light, which does not portend well for Johnny Horn. Kyle, it sounds like there's some uh, celebrant Floridians uh, nearby. Okay, is that uh, is that problematic? Uh, no, it, it's probably not a big deal. I, I mean, really, whatever. It is what it is. I just just wondered where it was coming from. <clears throat> it did sound like there's some raucous folk yeah, about, and, 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 and I naturally assume that'd be where you are. And, well, that's um, you, you do know one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, cool. Um, There's the gazebo down below. I can throw something at him if you need me to. Is Dr. Jacoby there? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just uh, come up and, and hit one of them behind the yeah, head. Yeah, okay. I think we go from here to uh, maybe the greatest scene of this episode. Yeah. Um, I would totally where agree. there's a, a, a woman uh, 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 sitting at her kitchen table with a, a laptop and a cup of coffee. And it turns out this is Betty Briggs. Um, Bobby has brought Sheriff Truman and Hawk over to ask uh, them about the day Garland died. And, you know, it's it's this really great moment where we, we've seen this before, primarily from Margaret from The Log Lady, where people show up at her house and she knows that they're going to be there and she knows what they're going to ask about. Cooper does some has a few other kind of premonitions back in seasons one and two of kind of knowing what someone is going to do or say before they come into the room. But here in Betty's case, it's not because she is, uh, you know, has some sort of gift of, of sight 
that Cooper and Margaret seem to have, it, it's because that Garland had specifically told her that one day Bobby and Hawk and Sheriff Truman would appear in their house and ask about Cooper. Um, and so it's just, just incredible scene <clears throat> where Betty conveys to Bobby the notion that Garland had always believed in him and, and, and that believed that he was going to go on a different path and he'd end up on the path where he is right now. Uh, and it's really exciting because Bobby certainly has come a long way from when his dad was like smacking a cigarette out of his mouth at the dining room table to where he appears to be one of the upstanding, competent, uh, non-asshole uh, deputies of the sheriff's department, assuming that he's not in on the drug trade that he's monitoring. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's a really, really powerful scene. And it's definitely one of those scenes where the threads are really coming together. Um, and what what she has for them is a, a tube, a metal tube that had been concealed in the top of a large armchair. I believe it's red. Is that, Kyle, I'll turn to you as the chair expert, that the upholstered chair where the tube is contained is, is actually a, a mostly red colored chair. Yes. And that it's released from the top of the chair by some like lever or something in, in the bottom of the chair or the leg of the chair. Um, and of course it's this kind of weird looking metallic tube. It's almost kind of like a, a cigar tube, but it's uh, it's just, you know, seemingly metal or stainless steel and it's seamless. There's nothing on it. Uh, and of course I immediately thought of either a cigar shaped UFO, uh, which, you know, was, is a thing. And I think specifically referenced in the secret history, uh, Jeff, do you, do you remember that since you, I know you reread it quite recently. Oh, there, yeah. there are a couple Everywhere. sections on, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're cigar shaped UFOs all over the place. Uh, and of course it made me think that it was a guild navigator ship from Dune. Cause that's just the kind of dork I am. Um, <laughs> we hadn't had a, we hadn't so, had a Dune reference from you yet. Here, right. About time. Right. I know. So, we sorry, I, had, I had to hold back, I had to hold back. Um, and so, so yeah. And, and it's interesting because when, when they first arrived, Betty offers them coffee and they all, you know, demur, uh, they don't want coffee. They kind of have to get to the business, but there's a sort of great relief after she gives them the cylinder. And, you know, we find out that Garland had this vision of what was going to happen. They're all very relieved and, and sort of, uh, as part of like a celebratory ritual, they, they definitely are ready for that coffee at the end of the scene. I just wanted to say, you know, talking of, of callbacks that this reminded me of probably one of my favorite speeches in all of Twin Peaks, uh, which is when Major Briggs is in the double R, and I believe it's the first episode of season two. Bobby, may I share something with you? Okay. A vision I had in my sleep last night, as distinguished from a dream, which is mere sorting and cataloging of the day's events by the subconscious. This was a vision fresh and clear as a mountain stream. The mind revealing itself to itself. In my vision, I was on the veranda of a vast estate, a palazzo of some fantastic proportion. There seemed to emanate from it a light from within this gleaming, radiant marble. I had known this place. I had, in fact, been born and raised there. This was my first return, a reunion with the deepest wellsprings of my being. Wandering about, I noticed happily that the house had been immaculately maintained. There had been added a number of additional rooms, but 
in a way that blended so seamlessly with the original construction, one would never detect any difference. Returning to the house's grand foyer, there came a knock at the door. My son was standing there. He was happy and carefree, clearly living a life of deep harmony and joy. We embraced a warm and loving embrace. Nothing was held. We were, in this moment, one. My vision ended. I awoke with a tremendous feeling of optimism and confidence in you and your future. That was my vision of you. You? I'm so glad to have had this opportunity to share it with you. Wish you nothing but the very best in all things. Thank you, Dad. See you later, Paul. Okay. I, Bobby seems moved, you know, by the end of it. He's like, really? You know, and I, I just, I, I love the callback to that scene. And right. it's, it's one of those great, totally surprising, unexpected things. You can't imagine this point recognizing that in Bobby at all, but Major Briggs was able to. And the callback to that was one of the best things about this episode. And I think Major Briggs may be my favorite character in all of Twin Peaks. No, he's great. He's, he's, he's definitely in the, my, one of my favorite, if not my very favorite characters, maybe next to Albert yeah. in the whole show. And so we go from this scene to Buckhorn uh, to a waiting room. Uh, Gordon uh, notes that it's a waiting room. Albert uh, notes that the people they're waiting for are right behind them. Uh, Kyle, I think you had like maybe one or two thoughts <laughs> yeah. about the waiting room. Yeah, this this would be the second point on me uh, putting way, way, way too much emphasis on a very minor point. But I don't think that line about it being a waiting room when it's an obvious point, I don't think that's a throwaway uh, because we've always had uh, the traffic light uh, as a symbolic, albeit vague, staple of Twin Peaks. And we've seen in season three distinct flashes of red, yellow, and green. There's a lot of green in this scene. There are potted plants. The floor tiles are green. There's a painting on the wall, the doors uh, that are visible in the hallway, and particularly the furniture in the waiting room uh, where, where they're going to be waiting is, is green. And, of course, that's the opposite of red on a traffic light. So it's significant that in this scene, we've already seen, or excuse me, in this episode, we've already seen a pair of the titular red chairs. I mean, the chair figures in the title of this episode, but we've seen these, these red chairs in Twin Peaks, the town, not the show. We've got the chair that Andy and Lucy buy online. Then we got the chair in which Major Briggs hid the crucial clue. And actually, we've seen three of these chairs because there's Major Briggs's chair, there's the chair Andy and Lucy decide to buy, and then there's the chair that Andy and Lucy actually buy. So again, we've got an example of doubling and tripling taking place simultaneously. In this scene, the pivotal figure is Diane. She's the only one who actually does any waiting in the waiting room. She's the only one who actually sits on the furniture. And she's the only one who has any knowledge that's relevant that isn't shared with one of the other characters. She's wearing a green suit with a red collar, a red bracelet, and red shoes with slight yellow accents on, on her clothing. 
She's got a handbag beside her on the green seat, and it likewise combines streaks of the very same traffic-like colors that have been seen by those characters with higher ties. Cooper saw red in the casino, Carl saw yellow at the intersection, and Cooper saw green at the office. And so the color scheme, in turn, ties into the doubling and tripling. We got the duality of stop versus go and the tripartite signal of red, yellow, and green. Cooper has six letters, and six is the product of two times three. Carl sees the yellow light at the intersection of Sparkwood and 21, and 21 begins with a two and is evenly divisible by three. So in light of this red-green duality being emphasized in this waiting room, we have to ask, have we seen a red waiting room anywhere? And the answer is, of course, we have, uh, because the, the so-named red room uh, in the Black Lodge shows uh, the little man from another place telling Cooper, this is the waiting room. I and mean, he comes right out and says it, although, of course, he says it backwards. And if we really want to go deep into the whole red-green thing, there are also a lot of red references in the Las Vegas scenes in this episode. The high heels are red. They talk about the tail light, which is red. The coffee cup that they go take from uh, Dougie Coop is also red. So our Buckhorn, the site of the event set into motion by Doppelcooper, and Las Vegas, the site of the event centered around Dougie Coop, doubles of one another in the same way that Deer Meadow and Twin Peaks were doubles of one another in Firewalk With Me. Because, and stay with me here, a Buck's Horns feature points on both sides of the male deer's head. They form a pair of points, twin peaks, if you will, while Las Vegas is Spanish for the meadows. So I think we've got a lot of uh, duality playing out here in the color scheme, in the cities, in the numbers. And so the fact that Gordon tells us what's presumably an obvious thing when he says it's a waiting room, uh, I think he's telling us something very significant about where we are and what's going on. That's great. I especially like the connection between Buckhorn, Twin Peaks, Las Vegas, and Deer Meadow, and and the the notion that we've we've already talked about that that Deer Meadow and Twin Peaks might be sort of doubles or doppelgangers of each other as a town themselves. Moving on, uh, Diane tries to smoke uh, in the waiting room. Uh, D- Detective Mackley tells her he can't, and she says, "It's a fucking morgue." <laughs> Uh, <laughs> in response to the instruction to uh, put her cigarette out. And then we see that she gets a text message and it's, and it's Mr. C's text message, which is really ominous, right? Like either she is somehow in league with Mr. C or she is being taunted by him. Uh, either option is, is pretty terrifying, right? I agree. And it was, it was really hard to read uh, Diane in this, uh, scene, I could not, on the second viewing, I was trying to, you know, see if there'd be a tell on her face or something. There wasn't, it was, it was, but yeah, I, I'm having a hard time stomaching the thought of her cooperating with him, but it's in the other thing. I think that several people noted, you know, when he sent the original text, uh, it was all lowercase letters. And then it was, uh, all uppercase letters when Diane actually received it. Maybe it's just a difference between the, 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 bedazzled pink cell phone that he sent her uh, the message from and what it's like to receive it on a, uh, an iPhone, but who knows? 
In the meantime, Ken has noted that there's kind of a, a walk and talk Sorkin style as Detective Macaulay explains what's been going on uh, in Buckhorn, some of which we knew and some of which we didn't know, uh, to Gordon and Albert and uh, hands Albert the file. Um, I guess Tammy as well, since she's there as well. So we, we find out that they have, in fact, arrested uh, Bill Hastings' lawyer for the murder of Bill Hastings' wife, uh, which we saw Mr. C setting him up for uh, at the beginning <clears throat> of Twin Peaks The Return. And then we find out also for the first time that, that Hastings' secretary died the next day in a car explosion. Uh, this is definitely big news because, you know, we know that Mr. C has been after those coordinates that the secretary had, but we didn't know what was going to happen to her. But apparently now we do. She blew up kind of like the car thieves that were after uh, uh, Dougie's car um, in the Rancho Rosa development. And of course, after all this is described, uh, uh, Albert has the, you know, maybe the best line of the episode. What happens in season two? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, JR, you can see why they wouldn't uh, have time to show us the off screen. They would have to do the death in an explosion of the secretary off screen, right? I mean, we only have 18 hours uh, to present this mystery, and there's so much sweeping to show, you know? Yeah, you, that's right. You'd have to cut out that's some right. silent staring. Sure. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or the second right. performance by Avoir Simone. <laughs> first first so they, of all, they, how they, dare you? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, they, they come into uh, the morgue and Constance is back. And uh, man, the sparks are flying between our, 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 you know, fan favorite show favorite Constance and, uh, and the perennial Albert. Yeah. Uh, he's real. He's really in his own, you know, for the first time, Albert isn't actively trying to make a dig at somebody. He's kind of enjoying the fact that uh, Constance notes that Hastings was a marbles champion of the sixth grade and lost his marbles when the dog got his cat eyes. Uh, it's, it's really, really good stuff. Constance is awesome. Yeah. So you guys coming down, you guys coming down as Albert Constance shippers. Is that what's happening here? Yes. Yes. Let's ban the word shippers from this podcast, please. I, I, I think I hesitated to bring it in the conversation, but I didn't know how else to say it. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't know that it we're shipping. I mean, arguably that's why, uh, that's what's going on when Diane's having the smoke break is I think Albert and Constance may have found a, you know, a little janitor's closet with some space to get to know. Yeah. That's other. happening off screen um, next to the car explosions. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so this is interesting. So now we get this, you know, another huge revelation in the show is that Hastings, it turns out has got a blog, uh, a website that exists in, in real life. We can all visit it. Uh, what's it called? This is it called the search for the zone.com. That's correct. <clears throat> and it's this great, uh, like GeoCities style website from the late nineties. Uh, that it's, it's like almost impossible to navigate or read. You know, it's like Yahoo cool site of the week and all this other badges at the bottom of the page. But it turns out that Bill Hastings had been in search of this place called the zone. Uh, and he's, he's being interrogated by, by agent Tamara Preston. I was actually encouraged for the first time to see Tamara talking to someone in such a way that she wasn't acting like a sex kitten. Um, and I think it's literally the first time that's ever happened uh, in, in the show here in, in, in part nine, it turns out that in Bill's last blog entry in his, in his website about searching for the zone uh, that they enter that he, he, he has this entry where he says, I, we entered what they call the zone and we met the major. So it, 
it like, you know, I think Kyle, is it your theory or Ken's theory that uh, the blog entry likely appeared the day that Briggs died? Yeah, well, just, just looking at the timeline, they said that was a blog entry from about a week ago. And presuming that Buckhorn and the Doppelcooper scenes line up chronologically, um, you know, that would have taken place in episode seven, which was the day before Constance told Cynthia that Garland died five or six days earlier. So, you know, it, it works out to be around a week. And so he, he very likely could have posted that the day that Briggs died. And then we, we shift from this scene to another critical scene and the forest surrounding Twin Peaks where Jerry Horn is um, having an argument with his foot. Um, who, who deny the foot itself denies that he is Jerry's foot, um, in a, in a really high pitched voice. And I think one of you guys uh, challenged me to, um, do an impersonation of Jerry's foot (laughs) and my, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and the reason why, cause when I, when I watched this scene, the first thing that came to mind is that in blue velvet, the character of Frank was originally supposed to be sucking on helium. Uh, which can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Like what? <laughs> I mean, yeah. You think about like some of his lines uh, uh, about referring to things that he wants to do with his mother on helium. Right. I, I mean, I have a feeling that that they 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 tried that, and, and David Lynch was like, "No, that's just that's too much. Can't can't do it." Um, and so, since I could not get helium on short order, I'm not going to impersonate Jerry's foot um, or what might be Jerry's foot. Uh, it's Jerry kind of tries to hit his foot, like push it away. And, you know, uh, as Ken points it out, he falls the fuck over uh, and it's hilarious. This was really funny. And I think that Lynch himself voiced the, what I'm calling the evil doppelganger foot. Uh, but there's also something really disturbing about these scenes. And I'm, I'm really worried something terrible might happen uh, to Jerry and he might never get out of the woods. Right. It could be an evolved foot. Right. Or an, an evolved doppelganger foot. We're yeah. in big trouble. Yeah, then. the voice really yeah. reminded me of the tear his or squeeze his hand off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Actually, it, it does. So. So, yeah, we, we, we come back to the to the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. Nobody cares that Lucy's on her lunch break, uh, except for Lucy, who points it out to everybody over and over again, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Kyle. Um, and so they come and uh, Hawk and. Sheriff Truman <coughs> and Bobby come into the conference room and there's fucking Chad, fucking Chad. Uh, eating, eating his uh, nasty uh, TV dinner at the table, reading a magazine. Do you guys um, think he was eating cream corn? Is that just me? <laughs> <laughs> there's a bowl of something yellow. It's, it's too yeah. bright yellow. I think to be corn, it's almost like banana pudding yellow. It, it, it's microwave Garmin Bosia. It's not, it's not the real thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Microwave Garmin Bosia. <laughs> corn and convenience Kyle Kyle you had some thoughts on this scene yeah and and again this is just me putting too much into it but you, you've got Chad as as very much the intrusive obnoxious corrupt presence that has insinuated itself into the Showtime series as Ken has noted I think every week except last time um, you know very much in defiance of, of our expectations from the original and and here we see him being expelled from the definitive Twin Peaks setting which is the conference room of the sheriff's stations. And, and in this room, I mean, we really got original series Twin Peaks on overdrive. You got the earth tones. You got the natural wood, the soft lighting. Bobby Briggs is there. Deputy Hawk is there. 
a Sheriff Truman, if not the one we were used to before. Uh, the banker's boxes containing the Laura Palmer case files are stacked along the walls. The blackboard from Agent Cooper's rock-throwing exercise standing in the background. Uh, you have mentions made of having coffee and donuts in that room. And so the banishment of Chad is this this elegant, symbolic shorthand uh, that, that we here are on the path back to classic Twin Peaks, if not in the series as a whole, then at least in this particular sequence. And then added to the fact... Uh, is is the fact that uh, to expel the offensive smell of Chad's rule-flouting food, his microwave Garmin Boja or whatever he's eating, Frank orders Bobby to open up a window, which he then does, and Bobby leans against the window, and so when the camera pans over to him, it catches all this leafy greenness outside the window, uh, and you've got Hawk and Truman sitting there, unable to discern the meaning of the clue in the conference room where Cooper arrived at so many of his revelations, and Bobby can figure it out. But it's going to require them to go outside, into the green, back into nature, in the direction of the woods where the log lady directed Hawk in search of Agent Cooper. Uh, so I, I think Andy and Lucy were right about the need to move away from the muted browns, uh, but they picked the wrong direction. They needed to head away from the red and, and toward the green. And, and P.S., uh, there's also a framed portrait of an American flag hanging on the conference room wall that looks very much like the one we previously saw standing in the Las Vegas Police Department, where Ken saw the, the inklings of a door. And, of course, we do have wall hangings with doorways to other places, uh, not exactly an unfamiliar element in this series after Firewalk With Me. What happens next is they've got to figure out how to open up this metallic tube and Bobby reveals that he's always known how to do it. Apparently his, his dad used to bring these things home from work. And the trick is you throw it against concrete and it makes a sound. And once it starts making that sound, when you throw it at concrete again, it opens. Um, so this is real high tech stuff. They open it up and they unravel, uh, it, it, they, un they unroll sort of two pieces of paper. Um, and on the, the the two pieces of paper, one of them it says 253 yards east of Jackrabbit's Palace, 253 10-1, 10-1, 10-2. Before leaving Jackrabbit's Palace, put some soil from that area in your pocket. And there's a picture of two triangles, which you know appear to be Twin Peaks, along with um, a kind of a red sun or red disc over one of the peaks, and then a. Uh, picture of exactly like what's on uh, Mr. C's playing card uh, that it looks like it, it's kind of like an owl ring symbol uh, with a, with a red sort of crescent moon on top of it. <clears throat> and it right now it's September 29th. And so, you know, we're going to have to get a handful of soil. Uh, Bobby knows exactly where this Jack rabbit's palace is. It's near where the station used to be. Um, and, and Bobby apparently gave the place its name. Uh, the other piece of paper is appears to be the clipping of the page that Major Briggs showed Cooper in the original series, uh, where Listening Post Alpha picked up the transmission Cooper, Cooper, Cooper in the middle of what was ostensibly um, a bunch of junk. This is the, the wow signal that like the wow signal that Ken referenced uh, in an earlier episode. And which, if we get to it, we have some listener feedback about, but that may have to come in another week. And, and I've noted that above the Cooper, 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 and, and this clipping that's contained in the metal tube, the third Cooper is cut off. Uh, and above the first two Coopers and the line above it appears M666, 
which I think we can not assume to be a coincidence. I've got a couple of things to say about this uh, whole sequence. One was just, you know, I think uh, in an earlier episode, Sonny Jim was reading a Hardy Boys mystery, which I think was like the mystery of the old mill or something like that. And his whole uh, bedroom was, you know, decorated in this kind of 50s cowboys and Indians sort of motif. Uh, but just the whole, you know, you got you have a little metal tube, it'll hit this frequency, you know, then you throw it down, then it breaks open, and then there's like rolled up in this little paper. There was this kind of amazing, you know, Hardy Boys mystery style, like unfolding uh, to this that I really, really enjoyed. Uh, and the other thing I was going to mention was, you know, uh, what I did on my, my summer vacation from Twin Peaks in the last two weeks was reread the secret history of Twin Peaks and then watch the first eight episodes. But one of the things that I gleaned from that uh, was the secret history ends with, uh, I guess it's an account of when Agent Cooper visited Major Briggs and Briggs had thought that Cooper was supposed to be his sort of control, uh, the person who was going to replace Doug Milford as his boss superior at the monitoring station outside Twin Peaks he was working at. But then it ends with Cooper visits him and then the sort of last thing, and he thought that Cooper, Cooper, Cooper meant that, that Cooper was the one who was going to take his place. But then after Bad Cooper, you know, fresh out of the Black Lodge visits him, uh, Major Briggs says he just left. Something's wrong. You know, which how many times have we heard something's wrong in Twin Peaks The Return? The message holds the answer just as I thought, but I've misinterpreted it. Protocols are in place. I must act quickly. Uh, and so I was wondering about this. You know, here we, we don't see the three Coopers, you know, that came through in the message. We just see Cooper, Cooper, and then a half Cooper. Uh, and then the way that Hawk interprets this is two Coopers. But my, my kind of uh, sense of the end of the secret history and this Cooper, Cooper, Cooper message was that, you know, it's some message from who knows, maybe Cooper in the Black Lodge 25 years later or something, you know, letting uh, people know that there are more than one Cooper out in the world. So I, I thought it was interesting. There's two, maybe the two and a half Cooper is, is Dougie Jones. That's why it's cut off. Uh, but uh, I liked that, that, that reappeared. That was, that was my, my theory, my grand theory coming out of rereading the secret history was that, the Cooper, Cooper, Cooper message had something to do with the state of affairs, uh, you know, as we've seen play out in the first, uh, you know, eight, nine episodes. That's all. Yeah. And, and Jeff, I, I think you're absolutely on the right track there, because, again, going back to the theme we've seen uh, recurring uh, throughout this episode, Hawk correctly reads the dual Cooper being there. He mentioned last time uh, or actually in episode seven where, uh, you know, he was he read the good Cooper is still in the Black Lodge, so therefore the Cooper that came out of the Black Lodge isn't the good Cooper, which I think is you know, pretty flawless uh, detective work there. Uh, so he's right about there being a dual Cooper, but because the third Cooper's cut off, he doesn't know that there's a third Cooper. And of course, Garland didn't know about Dougie because he foresaw this moment in 1989, uh, and we now know that Dougie wasn't manufactured until 1997. So he didn't realize the third Cooper mattered either, and that's why he these as as uh, uh, off center as as he did, and again, it's no accident that the dual and triple Coopers uh, are combined in the same scene with the recurring two five threes that we've seen throughout the return. Two five three begins with a two, it ends with a three. 
The middle digit is the sum of two plus three. This scene gives us two two five threes, one a physical distance, the other a time of day, but it also gives us three two five threes, 253 yards, 2.53 p.m. on October 1st, and 2.53 p.m. on October 2nd. And when do Lynch and Frost share this news with us? In episode 9 of an 18-episode season. Twin Peaks The Return is halfway done in the episode whose number is 3 times 3. So we're, we're getting a lot of these connections coming together throughout this episode. And finally, after the pure heroine David Lynch of episode 8, uh, it's nice to see the pendulum swinging back in episode 9, uh, which I think ties with episode 7 as, as what Jeff correctly referred to as the return's frostiest episode yet. Yeah, usually I task myself with combing Twitter for this sort of thing, but it's only been a couple of days since airing. Does anybody know if someone out there with a lot of time and energy has tried to plug all of the letter and number combos from this slip into something? Um, you know, in, in a fan community where people are taking the light flashes off the windows of an FBI jet and turning them into songs and all kinds of things, somebody must have tried to figure out what every single letter number sequence on here represents. I mean, we pointed out the M666, and obviously the Coopers matter, but uh, it wouldn't shock me if the other letter and number sequences weren't just noise or filler either, especially given how uh, distinctly they're displayed on the screen. I I was going to say, in in reference to kind of numerology, that they're, you know, this this might be a little off uh, subject matter right now, but I dug a little bit into the searchforthezone.com website, and there are some coordinates hidden at the very, very bottom of the website. And I think some intrepid internet uh, detectives figured out, you know, where that was, and it's some remote location in South Dakota. So, and, uh, you know, that might be where everyone is is heading uh, for a battle royale in episode, I don't know, 16, 17, 18. Nice. Yeah. We move from this uh, this scene where the contents of the tube are revealed back to Buckhorn, uh, where Diane is smoking outside. Uh, Cole and Tammy come out to join her while Albert's indisposed. I already shared with everybody my theory as to how he's indisposed. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's an, this is an amazing scene. It's this just fantastic, like, two-and-a-half-minute shot of Diane sitting there smoking, confident, really nonplussed by everything that's going on around her. And then you've got Gordon, who just <laughs> stares at the cigarette, stares at Diane, stares at cigarette, stares at Diane, you know, kind of smiles a little bit. You know, he's clearly fiending for that cigarette. Uh, and then, and then Tammy's just freaking out. Uh, she's so uncomfortable. And it, I don't know. I suspect part of why she's uncomfortable is because Dave uh, Gordon's attention is entirely on Diane and not on her, except when he kind of furtively looks over at her occasionally while he's mostly focused on the cigarette and Diane. Uh, But like she changes positions like 15 times in this, in like two minutes. Uh, It's, 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 it's really, uh, it's, it's interesting to see how uncomfortable she is and how relatively comfortable uh, Gordon and Diane are in the scene. Right. So, so we have this this exchange, uh, really amazing exchange, interrogation, artfully done, not artfully done, artfully done is a, a matter of contention here on this podcast, uh, where, uh, you know, she gets to, Tammy is asking Lillard, who's who's crying, and, and I think he's got a great performance, 
here just sobbing over the fact that, you know, he didn't kill Ruth. He didn't mean to kill Ruth. Uh, and he kind of tells the story of what he and his, his paramour, Ruth, the librarian, uh, and apparently his assistant were searching for an alternate dimension uh, for, for some reason. And uh, this search for an alternate dimension uh, took them to uh, a different place uh, where they met major Briggs uh, because they went to a certain place at a certain time. And of course we've seen that that's, that's, you know, how Glastonbury Glove worked at the end of season two. Um, they had to appear at a certain place at a certain time in order to enter the black lodge. And, and somehow that's what's going on here. And they happened to meet major Briggs uh, through this process where he was apparently hibernating, I guess, which explained why he isn't aged. Uh, and he wanted to go to a different place to get away from certain people who were after him. Uh, who those certain people are, you know, we can only speculate or the, the doppel, uh, you know, Mr. C, um, uh, the Black Lodge minions we, from above the convenience store that mostly we haven't seen so far in the show. Woodsman. I mean, it's, it's not clear who, who were, who was after, uh, Major Briggs and they, I guess Ruth and Bill Hastings found the coordinates Briggs needed in a secure military database because apparently Ruth is just that kind of librarian <laughs> that she can crack into military databases. Um, they bring him the numbers. They bring major Briggs, the numbers they brought him the numbers last Thursday. Um, and you know, he kind of breaks down and says, you know, I didn't kill her. Uh, it, what happened is some men, you know, pushed him down. Uh, again, we don't know who these are woodsmen. I don't know, but they demanded to know, uh, Bill Hastings wife's name and <clears throat> Hastings is able to identify major Briggs in a, a photo array, which he circles with a red pen. You know, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot more to talk about, but I guess before we go any further, do you guys have any, any thoughts or theories about what Bill Hastings has given up in the interrogation room so far? It does seem like this story doesn't quite hold together, you know, but I, I, I guess I accounted for the inconsistencies by just the fact that Hastings just seems fried, damaged, kind of destroyed by his encounter, you know, with, uh, you know, just even his minimal kind of encounter with what he calls the zone uh, and, you know, in the lodges. And it, it reminded me of Dougie, you know, and uh, the fact that, uh, I guess for regular mortals, it's very dangerous. You know, you can get your soul annihilated if you go into these places. And it does seem like uh, Hastings just seems emptied out. And, uh, you know, this a great performance by Lillard. And, uh, you know, just the, he, all he has left, it seems like, is, you know, thinking about the Bahamas and mixed drinks and scuba, which might be a good segue into Ken's Beverage Corner. Well, before we go there... Um, because we, we haven't talked about the scuba diving or the mixed drinks. Um, you know, he, he talks about in, in his sort of confession or testimony uh, interrogation by Tamara it, it, that, you know, how much he loved Ruth and how they were going to go scuba diving together and they were going to drink mixed drinks on the beach. But, you know, what occurred to me watching this, and I don't know why it never occurred to me before in terms of a man who dismembers his lover uh, in a brutal and awful fashion and later on has no memory of do doing it and, and, and d insists that he didn't yeah. do it. Of course, See, reminds me of lost sure. highway, right? Sure. Uh, where where yeah. Bill Pullman is going down the hallway past the red drapes, the red curtains, you know, looks in the mirror 
and something happens. Uh, and, you know, as, as we know, it, it's very hard to unravel um, in a logical way, anything that happens in that movie. But uh, I, I do feel a really strong connection between Bill Hastings and, and Bill Pullman's character in, in Lost Highway. Uh, but having said that, uh, I will now um, yield to Ken for his beverage corner. Well, thank you. Uh, just on on Lillard, though, I I actually my thing on Lost Highway is that you can logically explain almost everything and in it using one theory or another, right? You're just always going to come one logical step or inference short. This is definitely a different Lillard, though, than we saw in the first couple of episodes. So I I agree that it doesn't all quite add up because it's odd that he would be this fried and desperate and acting out sort of the long form exploration of grief aspect of his story uh, after he's been in jail or uh, for a few days, right? He seemed to be holding it together at the time he was arrested and immediately thereafter. So it's an odd and sort of sudden shift. But anyway... Uh, so Bahamas, mixed drinks, scuba. I did want to talk a little bit about what one can drink in the Bahamas. You would think that you can drink rum in the Bahamas, uh, but one thing you can't really drink is Bahamian rum. There haven't ever, at least in recent years, been particularly good rums produced in the Bahamas, and there's one small distillery there now. But the main reason is that there was a distillery in Nassau owned by Bacardi for a very long time. And Bacardi closed that distillery in 2009, announced that they were closing it in 2007, but closed it in 2009 because of a program that most people probably aren't aware of involving tax breaks for rum companies. So the vast majority of the rum that is consumed in this country, produced by the Bacardi Corporation and the Captain Morgan Company, which is owned by, uh, I think, Pernod Ricard, is subsidized by huge, huge tax breaks from the U.S. government through the government of Puerto Rico. And there was fear at one point that Bacardi would leave Puerto Rico behind, and so they were given these tax breaks. So there was a, there's, they're actually rebates. So they pay the tax, and then the tax comes back. And it was originally 10%. And in 2011, it went all the way up from a 10% tax rebate to a 46% tax rebate. Uh, and uh, the, the amount between 2011 and 2017 uh, that uh, was rebated to um, Bacardi was $434 million. Now, uh, originally, a lot of this money went towards economic development and social programs in Puerto Rico. Now, I'm led to understand the vast majority of it just goes back into the pockets of the Bacardi Corporation. And one of the reasons Bacardi closed a bunch of their other distilleries around the Caribbean was because they weren't getting the same kinds of breaks that they were getting from Puerto Rico. And one of the reasons the U.S. decided to uh, weigh up the uh, rebate from 10 to 46% was because they were terrified that uh, Bacardi would leave Puerto Rico in much the same way that Captain Morgan had announced that they were going to open up in a non-U.S. territory. So um, it's a little bit like, um, well, sorry, there was actually a little bit of a competition between two U.S. territories, Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is where Captain Morgan opened up their major huge distillery. So it's a little bit like the booze version of the scam that major sports owners are running on the mainland, where you hold the citizens of one area a hostage and insist that they give you huge tax breaks and publicly funded stadiums uh, in exchange for keeping your team there. And you just say, well, if you don't provide us with this giant handout and uh, 
public and uh, uh, make the stadium privatize the stadium and publicize the losses uh we are going to uh move our team right and they just they just hold whole teams and uh cities and areas and states hostage so uh, most notably recently there are three milwaukee bucks arenas right next to one another in in milwaukee uh, and it's uh and three atlanta brave stadiums have been constructed within 20 years of one another as uh, as i'm sure some of you know um so uh yeah so in a similar kind of a move the uh the rum corporation bacardi which produces the vast majority of the rum in the world is soaking the united states government uh and not returning the money to the citizens of puerto rico as it once did and this has been a depressing installment of ken's beverage corner so uh from the buckhorn police department uh we go back to the great northern where there's a scene between ben horn and ashley judd the hum is still there and the hum is noted to be mesmerizing and otherworldly. Uh, and Ben notes that it's like a ring out of a monastery bell. Uh, and, it, and somehow it's causing Beverly to fall for Ben. But he turns her down. And uh, she says, you're a good man, Ben. And I was just going to voice my theory that this hum seemed a lot like the kind of hum that was coming from the tuning fork like device that Major Briggs had concealed in the chair. So maybe there's another one hidden. Uh, in uh, the Great Northern somewhere, or perhaps there's a connection between the two sounds. Uh, but that's that's my speculative idea about the the hum. Okay, and then the last scene is in the Roadhouse, uh, where there's a Hudson Mohawk is playing some kind of electronic dance music, and there's a conversation now between uh, a blonde with crazy braids named Ella, who um, is. Uh, smelling and scratching her armpit who has, she has a really nasty rash and they have this conversation. Uh, she has this conversation with a brunette who we can infer is named Chloe. And they have this weird conversation about zebras uh, being out again and uh, a penguin being out. Uh, and it's very unclear w- exactly what they're talking about. The blonde has been recently fired from a burger place uh, for uh, coming to work high and, and the, she has this wicked rash under her armpit, which is really quite disgusting to watch. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I thought of of Mike and him having to cut his arm off uh, in reference to this scene, um, but I don't really have a lot more to say about it. I, I just want to add that uh, zebras and penguins are both animals that are partly white and partly black, like the lodges, like Agent Cooper suits like the duality of human beings. And we do have an instance in the original series in which Dale Cooper tells Annie Blackburn a joke about penguins. And and, uh, so it makes me ask, how's Annie? Things are rough for the the young people uh, in Twin Peaks these days. You know, we we talked about generational decay, I think, a few episodes back. Yeah, just I also wondered if the rash was caused uh, by those designer drugs at Redspin. Red and Richard Horn have been distributing around town. So, yeah, that's about all I have to say about this. It was really disgusting, though. The, the, the scene of her scratching your armpits is, was one of the more disgusting things in the whole series so far. And it kind of ties things up. Al Revoir Simone appears for the second time in the series. It's the first time someone's been double booked uh, at the Roadhouse since the show started. I'm not sure what there is to say about that. Um, were they introduced as the Arvois Simone? I don't know. Okay, just check it. 
Only the Nine Inch Nails have gotten the the introduction right. uh, from the the pinecone microphone yeah, so I, far. I, I think Arvo Simone is getting, or the Arvo Simone is getting dissed by not getting a pinecone microphone introduction. Okay, so anybody have any closing thoughts about part nine? We're halfway through. That's one thing that's kind of amazing to me to think about. Yeah. Yeah, we are. We are halfway through. I guess we're going to call it. Um, everybody, thanks for listening in. We will be back with part 10 next week. Hopefully, we'll be able to add some of our great listener feedback we've received, if not record a special episode of it. But thanks for listening, and we'll be uh, back next time. Thanks. Yeah.